This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Marilyn Hetrelis. This week we're fortunate enough to have a special guest in the studio, Lena Atala. Lena is the founder and editor-in-chief of independent Egyptian news outlet, Madamasa. She spent her career working to keep press freedom alive in Egypt. Madamasa was formed just before the military coup of 2013, and its staff have risked their lives to continue reporting amid growing censorship in Egypt. I spoke to Lena about the challenges she's faced, her hopes for the future of journalism in the Middle East, and about how Madamasa is keeping her going. As a journalist working in Egypt, you were previously the editor of major English-language newspaper The Egypt Independent before it was shut down. Can you tell us about that experience? So Egypt Independent was the English edition of a major uh, establishment publishing uh, different media outputs uh, in Egypt. And uh, in early 2013, uh, the management of the newspaper cited a sudden financial crisis on the back of which they uh, decided to shut down the operation and uh, and send off all the crew uh, working on it, which I was uh, uh, managing basically. So it was a group of uh, about 25 journalists. But also after uh, the whole ordeal happened, they mentioned uh, the you know political differences between our crew and the overall newspaper. And they also cited concerns with our stances against the military uh, institution, uh, which is not something that the broader corporation was preferring at the moment. A UNESCO study found as many as 186 laws that restrict freedom of press and expression in Egypt. How do you deal with press freedom limitations in the Middle East? Is self-censorship and media bias still rife? Uh, so, yeah, there are many ways in which media freedoms are repressed in Egypt and the region, and the laws uh, are only actually a form of it. The 180-something laws that you refer to is just one form of it. In fact, uh, censorship in a place like Egypt is, is uh, in many ways manifested in informal through informal channels and through, uh, you know, uh, forms of intimidations that are unspoken, uh, that, you know, are extra-legal in many ways. Uh, so it's not only the laws that uh, restrict media freedoms in, in a place like Egypt. Uh, self-censorship is certainly a form um, or, or a way uh, through which uh, a lot of journalists and media outlets uh, negotiate these restrictions. But we're also very conscious and aware of um, the extent to which self-censorship, you know, um, 
sneaks itself into our practice and we try to resist that as much as possible. So we are very alert to it because also self-censorship can become extremely embedded in your you know, inner psyche. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be a political position. You know, we are self-censoring today. It can be, uh, there is so much fear that, you know, uh, it's subtly in there and it uh, sort of permeates your decision-making processes. And yet we are trying to be in the new organizations we've, uh, we've set up together after the previous one was shut down. Um, so the current one is Madamos. So we are very conscious of resisting uh, that inner um, sensibility towards uh, self-censorship. So we, we never, for example, refrain from choosing to cover a certain story because we know it would get us into trouble. We never refrain from trying to speak to a certain source that is considered contentious or controversial by the authorities because we are fearful. We never definitely uh, reject publishing a story after it's done because we would think that it would get us into trouble. We just try to raise as much as possible our bar uh, in order to, you know, be able to continue because we also are concerned that the moment we start self-censoring, it will actually continue to, um, again, sneak itself more easily into our practice. So there is this active resistance, very conscious resistance to it uh, amongst mm. us. And do you have any specific examples of how you've gotten around this? So, for example, uh, in October of last year, one of our investigative journalists uh, wanted to uh, do a story about uh, a potential small uh, coup within the military institution uh, that eventually proved to be not so much of a coup, but uh, more of uh, a court case uh, prosecuting a number of uh, of officers within the army. It's a very contentious thing. It's uh, In Egypt, it's a big taboo to uh, write or say anything about uh, the military institution without its prior consent. In fact, this is uh, one of the 180-something laws that you cannot write anything about the military without its prior consent. And he proposed the story, and we knew from day one uh, that, you know, if we go ahead with a story like this, uh, even with the very small likelihood of him being able to report it and to get the needed information about it, uh, if it comes out, it's going to be a big problem uh, for us. But we decided to sort of tame the fear that we were all feeling collectively, including the reporter uh, himself included. Uh, and he eventually managed to write the story and we eventually managed to publish it. Uh, we didn't quite get around because uh, he eventually got summoned uh, by, by the military uh, prosecution uh, and was about uh, to face a big trial because of the the story and the newspaper was also about to uh, face the consequences of uh, this step. But then there was also a major international campaign demanding his freedom because he was in custody. Um, and this kind of put an end to the whole ordeal. It kind of put some pressure on the authorities to uh, basically release him and put an end to the case. So, But that's an example of a story that could have completely not come to the light because of the self-censorship. And I'm certainly very happy that uh, we did not go down that path. So you spoke of informal methods of intimidation that um, the government uses on journalists. Could you describe some of these? So one of one of the ways in which uh, in which journalists are typically intimidated in Egypt is that, for example, uh, if there's a protest. Uh, 
and um, you know journalists go out there to cover it there'll be a heavy police presence and there will be on-site targeting of uh, journalists uh, physical targeting of journalists in a way that you know is making today um, many journalists most journalists think twice before going out there and deciding to cover something from the ground and this has been a real challenge because we've been proponent of you know being on the field doing things from the ground as opposed to doing them from the desk but we've seen that the 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 price for that is becoming heftier and heftier especially if the very life of the journalist is is uh, in question so so targeting um in physical uh during physical uh, protests uh, is one form of it uh, gag orders uh, are typically issued on uh, on contentious issues uh, that the government doesn't want uh, to see coverage on uh, so you know if you break the gag order, um, you know, you start facing certain intimidations. Um, so those are forms of it. In big organizations, in big mainstream organizations that are privately owned, there is typically a relationship between the security apparatus and the chief editors and the publisher. So instead of actually uh, shutting down the newspaper or um, directly imprisoning journalists uh, there'll be like calls between the security apparatus and the chief editors to basically um, you know ask them to uh, shy away from writing about a certain story or ask them to pay attention to this particular reporter because their their reporting is seen as contentious so it's there is this dynamic of informality uh, that is also that takes place side by side to the more like uh, formal and official means of the laws and the courts and the prosecutions and so on. And do you know any journalists who are now behind bars? I know uh, a photojournalist uh, whose case has uh, has been mentioned quite a lot. Uh, his name is Shauken. Uh, he's a photojournalist. He's been in prison since 2013 uh, on charges of causing public disorder uh, through his, um, you know, you know, photojournalism work. You know, we know many others. It's just unfortunate that the case of uh, journalists in jail in Egypt uh, have gotten uh, uh, has gotten less and less attention after the release of uh, of uh, Peter Grest um, in Australia. And I think one of the one of the things that happened with uh, Peter's in, in incarceration is that it brought a lot of attention to the case in Egypt. But also, unfortunately, when the case uh, was almost uh, resolved, uh, you know, the the story of um, journalists behind bar in Egypt is getting less and less traction in the world. Your independent digital outlet formed in 2013 before the military coup. You say it was born out of crisis and inevitability. Where does the name come from? So Madame also is the Arabic word for... Um, the horizon of Egypt, uh, and that's because uh, it was set up in 2013, right, uh, right after we were fired, and at a moment when it was very hard for a group of independent journalists uh, to find anywhere else to work in Egypt, uh, because it it is it was a time when a lot of the, or if not most of the media outlets uh, in Egypt were deciding to align themselves uh, with uh, the upcoming authorities. And it was certainly not an environment in which we could work uh, easily. So we had to establish our own organization in order to be able to continue being journalists or else we 
will had we would have had to depart from the from the profession altogether. So when we say that Madame Mosso was the offspring of of inevitability and of crisis, it's because we certainly had to create it in order to be able to work, uh, or else there was no other uh, possibility. And we called it a horizon because we were thirsty for being able to you know look ahead and be able to you know. Uh, to to make sense out of the chaos that has uh, become of Egypt uh, today so it was also in a way a statement of uh, defiance and hope at a time when you know nobody wanted us to look ahead uh, everybody wanted us to like sit back and um, and you know look down and be disengaged basically and madame massa has been going for three years do you feel like it's achieving what you wanted to achieve I'm very happy that it has survived a tumultuous three years uh, in the political life of uh, of Egypt. Uh, so, I mean, its existence today is in and of itself an achievement. Uh, but I also have a lot of uh, ambitions for it in the sense that I don't want Madame Osso to only be hinging on the crisis, on the political crisis of Egypt. I want it to survive and to become uh, a media of reference uh, that is there to, to, to survive and to sustain itself Uh, on the longer run and that I have question marks around it's uh, there are a lot of economic challenges there are of course the ongoing political challenges if we survived those last three years I don't know for how long more we would be surviving so so of course I have concerns and question marks around uh, you know how far we can go with the bigger ambition that this media outlet has become especially w with its interest to produce you know a new form of journalism that is engaged, that is progressive, that is very experimental, uh, that does a lot of unlearning of, uh, of you know, the, the very traditional and conventional uh, uh, media practices that are out there in Egypt and in the world today. So all of these things, uh, we are yet to achieve them, but we also, uh, I don't know if we'll be given the time and the possibility uh, to be able to achieve them. And how have you been able to experiment with different ways of storytelling, which was one of your aims? So um, one of the things we, we've been talking about in the newsroom and with, with, with our colleagues is that, of course, because we are online and we are in this interactive space that is the Internet, uh, it is important to venture into, you know, different forms of multimedia, uh, audio production, uh, video production, and so on. But also at the same time, we always thought that uh, when media trends are so much uh, oriented towards these new forms, there is some power in, the, in, in, in text and in writing and in long-form journalism that tends to be kind of sidelined uh, and thought to be less important, especially online, especially when you say that uh, most of your readership is Uh, is young and you know in Egypt uh, over 60% of the population are young people that's right I'm uh, surprised to hear that yes we are mostly a, a, a population of young people but yet we thought that we should be uh, brave enough to invest in uh, different forms of writing in uh, long form in text in uh, strong editing in uh, you know encouraging different voices to venture into creative writing into even like uh, putting some creative writing in the more rigid form journalistic form so that's one way uh, one form of experimentation we've been very invested in and I, I've been very happy about I'd say And just with the funding issues, how have you managed to keep Madame Massa funded over the past three years? 
So we have uh, we have a lot of um, uh, contractual agreements with uh, media development organizations uh, in the world uh, that are interested in you know uh, innovative media practice um, in the world and in the region in particular on one hand, but also we've been very invested in trying to build a sustainability model around the knowledge economy that is the media. So we have uh, a diverse uh, media model that you know uh, is based on organizing events. Uh, Um, organizing concerts, uh, organizing uh, also doing editorial services and translations for other clients. So it's a very hybrid model that also includes advertisement, but also that doesn't depend on one uh, economic uh, model in order to ensure that you know different streams of revenue are coming into the organization. Is that the sort of model that you see for the future of journalism? I mean, we certainly don't have answers because we're not sustainable yet and we've got some years to go. But it's also a model that we're betting on and uh, we're betting on uh, continuing to experiment uh, with it in order to, uh, to, to, you know, for it to, uh, for, for its fruits to start being reaped. So I think we need a bit of time, but we're doing quite a bit on it, I'd say. Madame Masser is collectively owned by 23 founding journalists. How does this sort of collaboration work in practice? So basically, uh, in terms of the the inside workflow, it's a it's a traditional management model. But also, when it comes to uh, the strategic uh, development of the organization, in terms of you know uh, what kind of uh, growth prospects we have, what ta- what kind of organizational structure we want to uh, to to have or to tweak, uh, those are the kinds of decisions that we'd have to take collectively as uh, founding uh, as co-founding members. Uh, so it's really a question of engaging uh, the journalists in strategic decision-making processes uh, of the broader organization because they are co-owners, while on the day-to-day level, it's more of a traditional uh, management structure. You've witnessed three different leaders, dictator Hosni Mubarak, Muslim Brotherhood Mohamed Morsi, and the current military strongman al-Sisi. How did the reporting situation differ between them? So, I mean, it hasn't been so different, to be honest, in the sense that it never felt like a completely free uh, uh, environment. The only moment where we felt a certain laxity was just after the deposition of uh, Mubarak, when there was an interim military rule until uh, President Mohamed Morsi was elected. But other than that, we always felt uh, scrutinized and, you know, we always worked and operated with the sentiment that, you know, we were, we are going to be on the tip of being shut down or closed or imprisoned or whatever. So, yeah, journalism has always been a dissident act um, under the different administrations in Egypt. Uh, and, you know, the case cont- continues to be t- the case today. And it hasn't necessarily changed with this gesture of election that is considered a marker of democracy. So, you know, maybe it's it's easy to expect this, this lack of freedom uh, during the time of Mubarak when there weren't even uh, uh, anything close to free and fair elections. But even with the election of Morsi and later the election of Sisi, we are still living in a situation where we feel uh, extremely uh, restricted. In fact, sometimes in ways that were never the case uh, before, even during Mubarak's time. So it's quite paradoxical. You go out of your way to make sure you can cover the stories that need to be told. What's the biggest challenge you've had to face? Have you had to risk your life, risk your freedom? I think fear is the biggest challenge, the fear of what could happen, right? Uh, the fear of uh, the fear of losing freedom, um, 
I mean, we're not so much talking about the fear of losing life right now because uh, we are barely uh, doing any field reporting because there is barely any uh, political action in the states of Egypt today anyways. Uh, it was the case uh, up until 2013 when we were out there covering the protests, covering forced evictions of uh, and dispersal of protests and encampments. Um, 2013 in particular was... Uh, was a very uh, was it was a year of perils for us as journalists um, and for particularly those of us who were doing street reporting. It's less the case now because, as I said, we're not doing much street reporting. But the fear now is to really lose your freedom and to end up uh, to end up in jail, which is uh, not necessarily a price any one of us wants uh, to pay. Even though we defend so much uh, practice of free journalism and so on. So I'd say fear is the main challenge. Uh, yeah, fear is the main challenge. And how do you deal with the personal toll of your journalistic ventures? Um, that's a hard question. Uh, I don't <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, maybe by by also playing uh, out the exciting parts of it. So you know, it's it's. Uh, it's easy to victimize and to say it's such a hard labor and it's full of perils and it's full of risks and so on. Uh, but it's also very exciting to be, you know, working with copy, um, you know, intellectually engaging with uh, fellow journalists on, you know, angling and sources and positioning and ways of writing. So it's also there is a creative part of it that we try to play out. Um, and also, I mean, we also try to uh, play out the fun aspect of it. Uh, you know, again, like I said, one of our one of the things we do uh, in Madame Oster as part of our economic model is organize concerts and events and, you know, bring back laughter to the table and, you know, not to be overtly dramatic about it. And I think this also pays off for our personal lives because we feel like it is a nice social experiment and it's not just, um, you know, a, a state of exception that we're working with. And you grew up in quite a conservative family in Egypt. How do you think that shaped you as a journalist? My family is not that conservative. I don't know where you got that. I read from. that your family is conservative comparatively. Maybe they're not. What kind of okay? What kind of upbringing did you have, and how did that shape your career as a journalist? Uh, yeah, I came from an average Egyptian family, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they have some conservative stances on certain issues, but they are also extremely supportive. Uh, I think also through the the practice of journalism I've been engaging with, and through my community and my colleagues, they saw the promise of. Uh, good and uh, progressive journalism so they have become an, on their own right uh, defenders of uh, free free journalism and independent journalism and good journalism they've been calling for it they've been also expecting it from other media outlets they've been uh, more uh, media literate thanks to the kind of journalism that we've been producing so, so they've been very supportive and I think that's uh, that's been very helpful. Madame Massa reporting has been picked up by media outlets around the world. For example, the coverage of the Third Square protests against military rule and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Could you tell us a bit about those stories? One of the things that made Meta special at the beginning uh, in 2013 is that uh, we came out at a highly polarized uh, uh, moment uh, in, in, in Egypt's political history where, you know, a big part of the population was just, you know, blindly supportive of 
the military institution when uh, another portion was just blindly supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood. And, you know, we, we were coming out to say, well, you know, how about this very basic act of witnessing that is the responsibility, act of witnessing and recounting that is the basic responsibility of the media. So we came out as completely autonomous and independent uh, um, players out there uh, showing that, you know, the truth in Egypt cannot be reduced to just those two, uh, those two, to, to this binary of the military versus the Muslim Brotherhood and that, you know, life is much more complex and there's such, there's, it's not just a binary, it's a spectrum, basically. And we started reporting about manifestations of the spectrum, people in the middle who are not supportive of this group or that group, people who, you know, uh, seek the truth, for example, people who have this critical distance. And I think that was an interesting position, um, and, and that's why it was captured in other in, by, by fellow media and by international media, because there was this interest of seeing this completely different image that's, that was completely masked by the other media due to their alignments. Is investigative journalism for you extremely crucial at this point in time in the Middle East? I think it's one of the most important forms of journalism that needs investment and uh, further work and further engagement from our side, and which this is what we are doing. Um, I think it's, you know, also in terms of civic engagement, uh, I do not necessarily think it's a time for advocacy work in Egypt uh, or... Or yeah, I, I do think it's 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 a time when there is a dire need for information to reshape uh, the narratives that are out there, and it's the field of investigative journalism to do that, basically. And what obstacles do you face in accessing information as a journalist in Egypt? Well, of course, we don't have any guarantees for uh, information for freedom of information flows. Uh, uh, in the country, for example, we've been struggling to pass a law that you know, give us the right to, to access government and state information in general. And uh, there has been a lot of resistance uh, from the authorities to let this law pass, for example. So so access to information, particularly government and state information, is a major uh, challenge. But also, thanks to state propaganda, there has been a, a rising skepticism across the board from different players, you know, even, you know, private players, businesses, and so on from the media. Everyone uh, is very skeptical uh, to, you know, pass on information to a journalist. Uh, there is less of a belief in uh, the mission of media and journalism in, you know, in, in, in telling the truth and then um, and accordingly less collaboration. So it's harder and harder to get information. And what do you see as the media's role in holding the powerful to account and representing minorities? It's exactly that. It's uh, basically, you know, uh, representing uh, diverse voices, uh, voices that do not get, uh, um, you know, featured uh, by by other media and, you know, basically embarrassing, uh, very easily embarrassing uh, and openly embarrassing the authorities with, you know, uh, their flawed practices that do not uh, get exposed elsewhere. What is your proudest moment where your journalistic work has really made a change or an impact? Uh, it is hard to pinpoint a moment where the work we've done has directly uh, translated into actual change besides really this big and euphoric 2011 moment that we all 
share the pride in. It's not, uh, it's not, you know, solely the field of uh, or the category of journalists that can claim this moment. Everyone uh, can claim this moment, but I also claim it very well as a journalist because I do think that uh, the independent journalistic movement uh, prior to 2011 is one of the catalysts uh, that, you know, um, supported the, 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 uprising, the uprising in 2011. And whether whether we like it or not, even though we are in a very difficult political moment, 2011 was still a marking moment in sort of unsettling this historic relationship of the people to the authorities, to the state. So that's definitely one proud moment out there. But then, you know, my other moments of pride are really not directly connected to the change we are able to uh, to make. It's maybe a much lower bar. It's related to being able to survive of not withdrawing. It's been very easy to withdraw in Egypt, to politically withdraw in Egypt today uh, and to just be depressed and to stay in our houses and, and look down and, and feel there's nothing to be done. So the fact that we are operating up until now and what I call constantly manufacturing hope uh, at a time when it's very hard to find it anywhere else, I think is a constant moment of pride. So it's uh, we're less, um, how do you say, we're less ambitious when it comes to, uh, to when it comes to pride. It's smaller moments of of, uh, of victory that uh, that you know give us some pride, and I guess we're happy about that because it keeps us going. And do you have any journalistic idols in Egypt or the Arab world? Uh, I think the my hero right now is uh, one of our very own investigative journalism uh, journalists. His name is Hossein Bahget. Uh, his name might have come out in international media uh, because of uh, his brief incarceration, because of the military uh, coup story that he uh, published and which we talked about. Um, but also the many other young people who uh, whose names are lesser known and whose work is you know managing still to uh, to you know uh, sort of advance cutting edge narratives at a time when you don't find these uh, in Egypt today. And as you said, sixty percent of population are young people in Egypt. You do work with young people in at Madame So what's it like? What are your strategies for bringing in young people? It's not so hard because I'm not so old myself. So we, uh, I guess we understand ourselves uh, well. And I think it's the key thing is to um, establish an organizational culture that is a little different from uh, the one that exists in mainstream uh, media organizations, which tend to be like uh, small microcosms of the dictatorship, of the bigger dictatorship that is Egypt and that Egypt has been for, for years and years. So I think the key thing to uh, working with young journalists is to cultivate uh, a progressive uh, organizational culture where everyone is a stakeholder, where everyone is a co-owner, where everyone is consulted on big decisions, uh, on taking risks, where you know power is not accumulated and concentrated in the person of the chief editor or of the publisher and so on. I think this plays out something very important. And another thing would be a sensibility towards what the youth want to read and trying to constantly offer that. Hmm. And looking to the future, um, how do you see yourself pushing boundaries of mainstream media in Egypt in the future? I think I see I see this happening through my initiative and a lot of other small initiatives 
you know, either operating online or on a smaller scale, but also sort of multiplying uh, and managing to say, to show the complexity of the of the situation in Egypt and showing so many alternative images out there in such a way where that, you know, very solid, rigid, mainstream, unified image will completely be unsettled with time and will be completely unsustainable due to this, you know, diversity and plurality of uh, images that are sent from various sources. So I see on the longer run the hope as, you know, um, stemming from a lot of small uh, pockets of dissent uh, out there. You're able to report on these issues in the Middle East from the ground. How important is it to have relationships with international media organizations? Do you share resources? So we think it is important. Our priority, of course, is to build our constituency locally. And in order to do that, you cannot really do too many things at a time. But that said, we do think that it is important to stay on the radar of international media. In fact, with the less and less international media presence in Egypt, uh, which story doesn't matter that much internationally, the presence of local players like us becomes an important uh, site of mediation and awareness for a lot of these international media to stay tuned to the Egypt story and to keep covering it uh, um, at least sometimes through our lens. So we do have some uh, formal agreements, for example, we have a relation, a formal relation with The Guardian through their Africa network, whereby they uh, basically republish uh, some stories that they find poignant from our coverage and that, you know, provides a continuous uh, sort of eye on things happening inside Egypt. Um, there are similar, you know, uh, sharing content uh, agreements with other international uh, players. And there is an international interest in the kind of work we do precisely because uh, there, there aren't too many channel, channels um, of awareness into what's happening in Egypt uh, today. It's been hard. Uh, the environment has been highly restrictive. And yet uh, we've always managed to operate from a certain uh, site of marginality that I always call a, you know, a, site of, a site of alternative arrangement and, in fact, empowerment in many ways. And that site still exists. In fact, this is how Medamosu exists. You know, we are nothing but, you know, um, margins uh, to Egypt's mainstream today. Um, and, you know, with the presence of amplifying uh, mediums and channels such as the Internet, um, you can be on the margins, but your messages and your voices can, you know, sneak into the mainstream um, at different points in time. Not always, not consistently, certainly not constantly, uh, but we're also not in a bubble, uh, definitely. We are in the margins, we manage, it's, but it's also an extremely and increasingly porous environment, and we make use of that. Well, that's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guest this week, Lena Atala, from Egyptian publication Madamasa. Lena was brought to Australia by the Walkley Foundation for their annual Storyology Festival. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. My name's Marilyn Hetrilles. You can catch us at the same time next week. <laughs>